please turn with me to John's Gospel, the first chapter, verses 14 through 18. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 71 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the word of the Lord. It's been a, a long time. Well, I can't say a long time. Relatively, it's been a while. Um since I haven't been able to stop shaking entering in, into the pulpit. Um, not because I'm afraid of you, uh, but because of what we're going to talk about today is uh, very weighty. Um, it's a very big subject, and um, it's going to require a lot of patience on my part and a lot of grace and patience on your part to work through this together. Um, this morning we're beginning a very difficult task which is discussing the meaning and the importance of one particular word found in John chapter 1 verse 14 and John chapter 1 verse 18. Um, that particular word uh, that the Holy Spirit has chosen to use in order to open the door of eternity for us and to really show us the heart of the relationship that is between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, that word is in Greek is monogenes. I'm going to say that word today. I'm not afraid to use the Greek word. I think you're smart enough to at least learn one very important word. Monogonase, you guys can say it with me if you want. Monogonase, monogonase, monogonase. There we go. Yeah. Well, the word in Greek is monogonase. And believe me when I say that it's, it's, it's no small task to digest all that the Holy Spirit is communicating to us through that one word. And as I've discovered, it's far less easy than that to then take what is digested concerning the meaning of this word and pass it on to you in a helpful, understandable, and worshipful way. Um, at least not in one sermon. So today, or what we're going to do, I guess, is... Uh, we're going to break this down into two weeks here, and in order to look at this topic and understand what it really means to describe Jesus, the Son of God, as the monogenes to Petras, the monogenes of the Father, from the Father, para to Petras. Today we're just going to be laying a foundation for understanding what the Word is talking about by making sure that we have a basic understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Because if we don't have a basic understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, then we are not going to understand what is being communicated to us by this Word here in John 1.14 and John 1.18. And then we'll see what time it is at that point but the plan, tentatively, would be then to define that word monogenes and really ask the question, how should it be translated? Um, it's 
may seem like a trivial matter uh, concerning how we translate that word, but in fact, there's a lot of church history and a lot of discussion throughout church history that has rested upon a particular translation of that word, a particular understanding of what that word means. And that understanding is reflected in the way that that word is translated. And uh, just as a side note, I don't think I covered this anywhere in the sermon, but no one questioned how that word should be translated, really, until the late 1800s and early 1900s, at least not translated into English. And so you put that in the perspective of what else is going on during that time. You have a rise of skepticism. You have a rise of naturalism and efforts to make the scriptures more palatable to the un unconverted carnal human being. I think that there's probably some of that motivation at work in the discrepancy concerning how to translate this word. But we'll get into that. Let me begin here before we pray by saying that I am a little nervous about wading into these waters with you. And there are a couple reasons for that. Please hear me as I'm talking. I, I don't want to seem weak and I don't want to seem uns, unsure about what I'm doing up here. But I do want to confess to you, I feel very, very nervous. Um, first of all, because it has seemed a near impossible task to address this topic helpfully in a sermon. By, very, uh, by the very virtue of the fact that the precise nature of the son's relationship to the father was the most debated topic in the early centuries of the church, and that there have been volumes of works written in order to explain what is revealed to us in the scriptures, and you add to that the fact that this topic is rarely discussed in our own day, even in the church, especially in the church. Who else is going to talk about this? In light of those three things, there is so much work involved, so much work that we have to do just to get caught up on what the church historically has understood concerning the nature of the sonship of Christ. We are woefully ignorant of our history. And we are, I, I know that we are coming, I believe anyway, that by God's grace we are coming out of a time where ignorance of doctrine and theology was applauded. Don't give me theology, give me Jesus. That kind of mantra. right? I'm, I thank God that we are coming out of a time at least certain segments in the church are coming out of a time where that was the conviction of their hearts. You know, there's, there's just a, such, a, that's such a contradictory statement. You cannot know anything about Jesus. You cannot have Jesus without having a theology of Jesus. Because as soon as you say, don't give me theology, give me Jesus, the next question is, well, what Jesus do you want? Everyone has a Jesus. The question is whether or not your understanding of Jesus lines up with the Jesus revealed to us in the Word. So you have to do theology if you want to have Jesus. It's just that simple. You have to study God if you want to know Him and live in a manner that's pleasing to Him. But, when it comes to this topic, that adds some complication to it. Because there's a large history here, and we have to get caught up on how the church has historically understood what is meant by monogenes here in reference to Jesus Christ. And that is not easy to discuss. That's going to stretch your minds today, and I hope you're ready. Um, I think this is actually probably why I have never heard a sermon where anyone has discussed this in a sermon. And it was very difficult for me to find any sermon where anyone was actually addressing it. Uh, even from very popular preachers that I like to listen to, it was very hard for me to find someone addressing this topic in a sermon. That's because it's very difficult to do. Maybe there's some wisdom in that absence of sermons on this topic that I'm not heeding. Uh, so I'm a little nervous about jumping into the deep end with you of this glorious revelation. And I'm nervous that we're all going to be so overwhelmed with how deep the waters are that we're not going to enjoy swimming in those waters. Uh, 
which is not, that then would not be achieving the goal of preaching. So that's one reason why I'm a little nervous. I'm also nervous because I don't want God's rebuke to Job to be God's rebuke to me. Remember in Job 38, verse 2, when the Lord came to correct Job for his sinful speculations about God's dealings with him, the Lord said to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's a rebuke. Um, I don't want to darken counsel, the counsel of God's word, by speaking words without knowledge. And I don't want to leave you all with greater confusion on this matter at the end of our time than what was present at the beginning of our time. And so when we're talking about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, it is very easy to, to do just that, to speak words without knowledge, to darken the counsel of God's word, and to leave his people with confusion. These are the dangers that do give me pause about covering a topic like this in a sermon on a Sunday morning, but I am confident that if we stick to the Word of God, and if we limit our speculations to what God has revealed to us in His Word, we will avoid these dangers. And in that way, I believe God will guide us by His wisdom into how to understand, how to think about, and how to worship Jesus Christ as the Father's monogamous as the eternally only begotten Son of the Father. All right, so with that said, you guys with me? All right. With that said, it should be obvious that today's sermon and next week's sermon is probably going to stretch your minds a bit, uh, simply because of the heavy teaching that's necessary to discuss the topic that we're looking at. And um, as I mentioned, today is merely laying a foundation for next week. Let me add one parenthesis here before, parentheses here before we go into prayer. In one sense, it's, and really this is kind of the application of the whole sermon, so get this. In one sense, sermons like what I'm going to preach today test the depth of our Christianity. They test the depth of our commitment to Christ and our resolve to hold fast to who He is and to worship Him for who He is. Sermons like today force us to examine just how focused our worship is on understanding who God is and worshiping Him in light of who He is and how He has revealed Himself to us. So in one sense, the, the application of this whole sermon is really coming down to this. How much do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's going to be tested as we begin to look at the nature of Jesus Christ and His relationship to the Father. When you love someone, you want to know that person. You want to draw near to that person. You want to, you want to have fellowship and communion and intimacy with that person as deep as possible. Right? That's how you know you love someone. The only way to do that is to actually get to know who that person is. Spend time doing that. And that's really what we're doing today. We're getting to know who is this Jesus that we believe in. And I hope and pray that it will be a blessing and that it will be helpful to you. I would like, if, if you would like to read and understand more about what we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks, there's a, there's a fantastic issue of Table Talk from Ligonier Ministries uh, from December 2019. And they go through all of this stuff that we're going to be looking at today. So pick that up if you want to read more about it. All right? All right, so with those cautions out of the way, would you, would you pray with me? Lord, we do come before you this morning as our Heavenly Father, as our Holy Savior. as the one who has loved us and sent forth your Son to be the propitiation for our sins and to be our great Redeemer. Lord, I do pray for your grace. I do pray for your help this morning, that you would be with us, that you would allow us to rejoice in the truth, 
that you would open our minds to behold wondrous things out of your law, that you would unite our hearts to fear your holy name. Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts as we run in the path of your commandments. Lord, help us know you and help us worship you in spirit and in truth this morning, whether in preaching or in listening to preaching, whether in singing, whether in praying together as we come before you together even now. Father, we do pray that you would bless this time for the glory of your name, for the sake of our worship of you, Lord, and our faith and trust and worship of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, Father. Amen. 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 All right, you guys ready? Yes. Here we go. You might remember that John's purpose in writing the Gospel of John is spelled out for us in John 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John was written, in other words, so that everyone who reads it would come to believe in Jesus Christ. Not only believing in him as a person, as a man, as a good teacher, as someone who modeled a holy life, but believing in him specifically as the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, John says, believing this truth is so necessary that eternal life in fellowship with God is dependent upon whether you understand it and receive it in faith. But that leads to a question that plagues many people, a question that plagued me for many years of my life, my walk with Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? In what sense is he to be understood as the Son of God the Father? Now, many have tried to answer that question with erroneous viewpoints in history, believing that his sonship was limited to his humanity, that it was when he was born uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus became the begotten, the holy begotten Son of God. That's not right. Otherwise, the Father has not been eternally the Father. And Galatians 4 makes no sense when it says that the Father at the right time sent forth His Son to be born of a woman. He was His Son before He was born. Yeah, others have tried to describe Jesus as the Son of God merely through adoption. That God found a holy man and adopted Him to be His special Son and thereby received this title of monogenes, of the Father. Well, n- neither of those are right, but we're still left with questions. If those aren't right, then what does it mean? If we call Jesus the Son of God, does that mean that He is not God? If we call Jesus the Son of God, the Father, does that mean that He is somehow lesser God than the Father? Well, God answers these questions for us by using the specific word that we're looking at today, which is used four times in this gospel, by the way, John 1.14, 1.18, 3.16, and 3.18. So this word appears four times in the gospel of John, and it's used to describe the nature of Jesus' sonship in relation to God the Father. As I mentioned earlier, that word is monogenes. Now, as we try to build in our minds a right understanding of the meaning and the importance of this word, we need to, take, we need to make sure that we're starting on the right foundation, which is the doctrine of the Trinity as a whole. The doctrine of the Trinity is foundational to Christianity and to the gospel. Herman Bavinck rightly wrote in his Reformed Dogmatics, that the entire Christian belief system stands or falls with the confession of God's Trinity. That's an amazing statement. The entire Christian belief system stands or falls with the confession of God's Trinity. It is the core of the Christian faith. It is the root of all its dogmas, the basic content 
of the new covenant. Now that's quite a statement. To say that you can't even understand the new covenant unless you believe in and confess the doctrine of the Trinity. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith goes a little further than that and says that the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. That's more than just a theoretical, speculative knowledge about the Trinity. That's dealing with the way it actually impacts and affects our walk with the Lord. That our entire sense of communion, our objective communion with God is based entirely upon the doctrine of the, uh, the Trinity, but also your subjective communion with God is based upon the doctrine of the Trinity. That is what your, your, your sense of comfort in the reality of God is built upon. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, each accomplishing a unique role and work in your redemption and then moving in time and history to bring that redemption to pass. It's the foundation of our communion and comfortable dependence on God. It shows how important it is. And yet, how many Christians would be able to articulate a clear presentation of the Trinity if someone asked them to do it? You know, there's a reason why cults like Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses and even Oneness Pentecostals most often attack the doctrine of the Trinity whenever they're dealing with Christians. And that's simply because most Christians do not know how to defend the doctrine of the Trinity from the Scriptures. Most would profess to believe it. I don't think any rightly baptized Christian would say they don't believe in the Trinity. But how many of them would be able to explain from scriptures why they believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? Now, I personally believe that Oak Ridge Community Church would be found far above what you would find in average, the average church in America. But let me reemphasize that in order to understand the doctrine of Jesus' sonship, which is what monogamous is all about, you must have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. So that's where we're going to go beginning here this morning. It's amazing. I've been up here for 20 minutes, and I just said beginning. So, yeah. All right. If you could, or if someone asked you to describe the Trinity, where would you begin? What would you say? How would you communicate that to someone in such a way that it's clear it's concise, and it's biblical. How would you explain that in a way that really encompasses the major tenets of what the doctrine of the Trinity is all about? Well, I believe that a biblical understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity can be summarized in three statements. Three pillars of a Trinitarian confession is what I have that written as here. Or, I have it subtitled there, for those of you who are interested, Three easy steps to confessing the Trinity. Three easy steps to confessing the Trinity. Just as simple as one, two, three. Number one. Number one pillar of a Trinitarian confession. Monotheism. The Bible teaches clearly that there is only one God. The Bible gives clear witness to the fact that there is one and only one God. As the Lord told the people of Israel, I went down to Egypt and took a people for myself. I even let you hear my voice on Mount Sinai so that, Deuteronomy 4.35, you might know that the Lord, He is God and there is no other besides Him. Here, the Lord really lays a lot of weight on the purpose behind bringing Israel out of Egypt. Why did He redeem them? Why did He bring them to Sinai? Why did He declare to them the ten words from the mountain and terrify their hearts and strike them with the fear of the Lord? He says, it's so that you would know that I am the only God that there is and there is no other. So worship me. 
This actually became the basis for Deuteronomy 6.4, what's called the Shema. Maybe some of you have heard the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This was a fundamental confession of faith in the true God to declare him wholeheartedly to be Yahweh, to be the only true God. This is the faith that God calls all the nations of the world to possess. Isaiah 45, 22. He declares to all the nations, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Well, this is where our understanding of this being that is called God, this is where it must begin. That there's only one God, his name is Yahweh, and in his essence and in his being, he is one. So that is pillar number one, monotheism. Pillar number two. In the Bible, there are three persons identified as the one true God. The Bible teaches there is only one God. In the Bible, we find three persons identified as God. Obviously, the Father is very often referred to as God, so often, in fact, that this particular point has never been debated, at least not in, within the debates of the church. In John 1.18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now here, God, in particular, is particularly identified with the person of the Father. No one has seen God at any time. It's the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Now you see this also in many other times in introductory portions of New Testament letters when God, the, God is spoken of as God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, the person called the Father is identified as God in the Scriptures. However, there are places in Scripture where the Son is also called God. For example, in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Paul, writing about the, his desire and his burden to see Jewish people saved, he speaks of from them coming forth the Christ. right? And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? who is God blessed forever, who is God over all blessed forever. Or you see in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where Christians are called to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very clearly from those scriptures, we find that we have two persons identified as God in the Bible. And despite what our Jehovah Witness friends might say, we even find the person of the Holy Spirit identified in Scripture as God. The classic text on this is found in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. In verse 3, we find that lying to the Holy Spirit is, is unpacked, excuse me, in Acts 5, verses 3 through 4, we find that lying to the Holy Spirit in verse 3 is the same as lying to God in verse 4. Now that's a clear declaration that the Holy Spirit is in fact God. If you are lying to the Holy Spirit, and by lying to the Holy Spirit it means you are lying to God, then there is an equal sign between those two things. You can say that the Holy Spirit is the God to whom you're lying. Now, if we had time, I would also reinforce this by showing you the many places where each person of the Trinity is identified as Yahweh in the New Testament. But the point is that while Scripture emphatically maintains that there is only one God, it also identifies three persons as God. Which leads to our third and defining marker, really, of the doctrine of the Trinity, this third pillar. Number one is monotheism. The Bible teaches there is only one God. Number two, there are three persons identified as God in the Bible. Number three, these three persons are distinct. 
these three persons are distinguishable from one another. This is really important to see. Yes, there is only one God. Yes, there are three persons identified as that one God. But also, these three persons are distinct. That is, they are distinguishable from one another. And we see this in various ways in the New Testament. Number one, we can see it very clearly when we find these three persons having personal interactions with one another. For example, we find them in John 12, 28, speaking to one another. Father speaking to, son speaking to the father, father speaking to the son. Genesis 11, verse 7, and also in Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 2, we find God taking counsel with himself. He is counseling and saying, let us do this. Let us go down. Well, that is viewed as internal counsel within the, the Godhead, within the Trinity. We find them knowing one another, these persons knowing one another. John 10, 15, even as the Father knows me, Jesus says, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Or even 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, in reference to the Holy Spirit, where it says, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, it's impossible. These are just a few examples of the kinds of interactions that we find in the Scriptures in regard to these three persons. They are interacting with one another. Now, it's impossible to have these kinds of relational interactions unless the persons interacting are in some way really and truly distinct persons. Does that make sense? Haven't lost anyone yet? I see some zoning out there. I do. I understand. Try to rein it in. Discipline the mind. Let's have our minds renewed. All right. Now, we also see this distinction between persons in another way. And this gets us to what is so important about this word monogamous. We also see the distinction between the persons revealed through the way each of these persons is addressed or what they are called. One person is always and continuously referred to as the father. Another is always called the son. Another is always spoken of as the Spirit. And one person in Scripture, it's important to note, is never confused with any of the others or either of the others. The designations of each person, each of the persons, proves that they are distinct persons from one another. You cannot call upon the Father and call Him the Holy Spirit. You cannot call upon the Father and call Him Jesus. We draw near to the Father, but we draw near to Him through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. There's a distinction of persons here. And this is why I want to start to point out here, focus in with me. There is a reason why these distinct persons are called what they are called. There's a reason why the Father is called the Father. There is a reason why the, Son, the Spirit is called the Spirit. And there is a reason why the Son is called the Son. That is because these, these, these identifications are describing for us the internal relations of these persons that they eternally share with one another. Do you understand that? The designation's Father, the designation Son, the designation Spirit, that is referring, that is bringing us into a contemplation of the eternal relationships that exist between these three persons. There's nothing in creation that mandated the Father to be called Father. There's nothing in creation that mandated the Son to be called Son. There's nothing in creation that determined that the Spirit would be called the Holy Spirit. These are designations, these are markers signaling to us and describing for us the eternal relationships that exist between the three persons.
Historically, the church has referred to these relations as the eternal relations of origin. Eternal relations of origin. The reason why they call them that is because these descriptions of these persons, these titles even, these names, these are the only open door that we have for understanding the eternal relations between the persons in the Trinity. And they represent the only way that we have also to distinguish one person from another within the Trinity. The 1689 Baptist Confession describes these distinct relations well, I think, in chapter 2, paragraph 3. After affirming that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are of one substance, meaning they are the same being, they are of one substance and power and eternity, each person having the whole divine essence, right? it's just saying they're all co-equal and co-eternally God, in the fullest sense of that word, God. After affirming that, it then describes the several peculiar relative properties and personal relations that distinguish one person from another. Meaning, they are of one essence, yes, but there are certain properties that belong to the individual persons that distinguish them from one another. In this one being of God, all the persons are infinite, they are without beginning, and therefore they are but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. It means he's not carved up into three pieces, and each one of these persons has one little piece of God, and another person has another little piece of God, and then the third person has a separate piece of God, and they all equal the totality of God when they come together. That's not, that's not the picture. The picture is the eternality of the being of God is fully and equally and entirely present in every single individual person. Each one of the persons. I'm excited about that because I've been reading about this all week. Are you guys excited? <laughs> I mean, really, I know this is... I know. I know you bear with me well, okay? But really, what we're getting at here is behold your God, right? That's what we're getting at. Isn't that Isaiah 40? When, it, when the call of, of the prophet is behold your God when the Son of God steps forth. That's what we're doing here. Behold your God. So after, in describing the one being of God, all persons are infinite without beginning and therefore are but one God, it then moves on to distinguish these peculiar relative properties and personal relations that distinguish the three persons. As to their being, they are one essence. As to their persons, they are distinguished from one another by these relative properties. And what are they? Well, here they're described in the middle of that paragraph. The Father... Here's his peculiar relative property. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. That is what distinguishes the Father from the Spirit and the Son. He is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son, what distinguishes him is that he is the eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit is not the eternally begotten of the Father. The Son is the eternally begotten of the Father. And what distinguishes the Holy Spirit? The fact that the Holy Spirit proceeds from Father and Son. See, the Father is called Father because in His person, He is the origin and source of the other two persons. I'm just waiting to see in your eyes what happened to me the first time I read that. What? What did you say? Wait. The Father is called the Father because He is the origin and source of the other two persons? Are you saying that the other two persons are subordinate in their nature to the person of the Father? 
We're going to get into that next week. (laughs) But for now, hear the truth. I'll explain it next week. That the Father is called the Father because in his person he is the origin and source of the other two persons. The Son is called Son because he is the one who is eternally begotten as the only Son from the Father. There is no other. And the Spirit is called the Spirit. This is interesting. The Spirit is called the Spirit because he is the one who is spirated from both Father and Son. That is, he is the one who is breathed out. He proceeds forth from Father and Son. Now remember, keep this in mind, that when we're talking about these eternal relations of origin... We are not talking about something that has happened in time. Nor are we even talking about something that happened at some point in eternity. Right? It's not as though God at one point was Father, even in eternity. And then at one point in eternity became Father, Son. And then at another point in eternity, Father, Son became Father, Son, Spirit. That's that's not the picture here. God never became this way. It is his nature, it is his eternal nature that he exists this way. I think Louis Burkhoff describes this very well in his systematic theology. He says the existence of these eternal relations was not an act that was completed in the far distant past. You can even push that back into eternity. This was not an act that God completed in eternity. But rather, it is a timeless act. It is the act of an eternal present, an act always continuing and yet ever completed. Isn't that amazing to read something like that? Someone said that with force and conviction. It is an eternal act that is an act of an eternal present, he says, an act that is always continuing and yet ever completed. Amazing. Well, these three pillars are what led the church historically to confess faith in God as Trinity or as a tri-unity. There is one God, there is one being that is God, there are three persons identified as God, and those three persons exist eternally, or I should say God exists eternally in these three persons. Now I'm sure you can tell, but it is specifically in regard to the third pillar of our Doctrine of the Trinity Confession, it's specifically in regard to the third pillar that the word monogonase becomes so important. Because this word is the only means given to us in Scripture for understanding how the Son is a distinct person from the Father, as well as what the unique relationship between Father and Son is. In fact, this word is what distinguishes not only the person of the Son from the Father and the Spirit, but it's also this word that distinguishes the person of the Father. Wait, did I say that? No, let me reread that. In fact, this one word is what distinguishes not only the person of the Son from Father and Spirit, it is also what distinguishes the person of the Father from the Spirit and the Son. You guys okay? Are we okay if we go on to the next point then? All right. Let's look briefly then at how we should translate this word monogonase. If it's so important for us to understand the nature of the son's relationship to the father, then how how are we supposed to translate it? In order to understand the Greek language, you either have to speak Greek or you have to have it translated into your own language. How do we do that? How would we translate it since most of us don't speak Greek or read it? Well, as I said earlier, the way that you translate this word will impact how you understand the son's relationship to the father. I mentioned last week that some translations have only son or only unique son or one and only son. 
NIV, ESV, CSB, others, NLT. And then there are other translations like the New American Standard, Legacy Standard Bible, New King James, King James, who maintain a translation of the only begotten Son. Well, which, which one is it? Well, as I said, there's a large discussion on this issue, and it involves a lot of different parts, and I'm not going to share all of that with you. But I think I can boil it down to how many, how many reasons do I have here? I think I can boil it down to three reasons for why we should translate this word as begotten or only begotten. Okay. Number one, how should we translate this word? We should translate it as only begotten. Here's the first reason why. Number one, the way that this word was used by Greek-speaking people of the time. The way that this word was used by Greek-speaking people of the time. When speaking of the relationship between two people, this word is only used in one way. And that is in reference to an only child born to a parent. In speaking of the relationship between two people, Greeks would use this word in one way, and that would be to speak of the only child born to a parent. What we used to call only begotten, right? A child without siblings. You can see this usage, for example, in Luke chapter 7, verse 12 where Luke actually uses this word three times for the same depiction of a, the only son or the only daughter of a parent. Luke 7, 12, it says, Now as Jesus approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. That's the only begotten of his mother. Now clearly the sense here is only son born to his mother, right? Or only begotten. It's describing the kind of relationship that existed between this son and his mother. What was that relationship? Was it an only relationship? Was it merely a unique relationship? No. It was a relationship particularly defined as being the only son born to her. The only begotten son for her. And that is, this, this concept, this relational element requires that in this context, this word be translated as only begotten rather than only or unique. Particularly when this word is used in reference to animals or to plants, this word very often could mean only kind of plant or a unique kind of tree. In fact, I think it's Origen that uses this word to speak of the phoenix. You know, the mythical creature, the phoenix, Origen believed it was real. And he spoke of it as a, a creature that was monogamous, a creature that was unique, a creature that was one of its kind. You can use a word like that whenever you're speaking of plants or whenever you're speaking of animals. But when you come to describe the relationship between a parent and their only child, this word specifically means only begotten. I think Lee Irons, if you want to read a fabulous article, anything written by Lee, Charles Lee Irons on this topic is worth reading. He's argued beyond doubt, in my opinion, that every time this word was used to describe the relationship between two persons, it is always with reference to the only child born to a parent. He points to the fact that there are no other family relationships that are ever described by this word. So if the word only meant only then someone might describe their wife as the monogamous wife, their only wife, or their unique wife, right? Or maybe if they only had one aunt, they could describe that aunt as only aunt, or uncle. I, I know I say aunt, you guys say aunt. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the ants out in the ground. <laughs> but that word is never used that way. It's never used to speak of an only hand, an only eye, an only ear. It's only ever used to speak of an only child, one who is the only born of 
his or her mother. So the way that this word was used in Greek culture indicates that when it is used in reference to the son's relationship with the father, it ought to be translated as only begotten and not only or only unique. That's my first reason. Number two, second reason why I believe it should be only begotten rather than only unique or one and only. The second reason why it should be only begotten is how the early church, who spoke Greek, understood the meaning of this word. When the early church used this word, how did they understand its meaning? They were the ones who actually spoke Greek. So we should probably listen to them whenever they lay out for us a definition of that word. I mean, we're... And we're not even talking about modern-day Greek. We're talking about Koine Greek. Nobody speaks that anymore. We're we're 1,500 years removed from any context where we would be able to speak with anyone who knew specifically in Greek what this was like. How arrogant of us to think that we've got it figured out and we know more than those who actually spoke the language at the time. That's just the mindset of our day. We think we know so much more than those who have gone before us. We are so ignorant. Our computers do all our thinking for us. We don't know how to think anymore. Off of that soapbox. The way that the early church used or spoke of the meaning of this word ought to inform how we understand the meaning of this word. If you have a bulletin, go ahead and open up. On the inside left page, I have printed there the Nicene Creed. If you didn't grab one, I have the specific section we're going to look at here up on the screen. Thank you, Stacy. I want to notice this second paragraph of the Nicene Creed that's actually presenting to us what the early church believed to be a true confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What did it mean to have true faith in Jesus Christ? Well, this is what the early church believed that meant, what it entailed. Notice it starts by saying, I've got it added here, and I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Now that's our same word. That's monogenes, right? And it's being drawn from John chapter 1, verse 14, John chapter 1, verse 18, John chapter 3, verse 16, and John chapter 3, verse 18. Or you could go to 1 John. It's used in 1 John once as well. For the early church, to confess faith in Jesus Christ meant confessing faith in him as the only begotten son of the father. Now, how did they understand what only begotten meant? What did it mean to believe in Jesus as the only begotten son of the father? Did it mean that he was the only son of the father? Did it mean that he was the unique one of the father? Well, they tell us exactly how they interpreted that word in the very next line. They confess faith in him as the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages. Only begotten is monogenes. Begotten in Greek is genao. And that word specifically means to beget or to become a parent of someone. So when the early church fathers are sitting here saying, or when the, when the early centuries of the church are considering what it means to confess faith in Jesus as the only begotten Son, they interpret that word using another word that means to beget, to give birth to. They don't interpret it as unique Son. As I said, in other words, they did not understand only begotten to mean that the Son of God was the only unique one from the Father. They understood that the word in reference to the eternal relationship of the Son could only be described as an eternally begotten relationship, which is to be understood in terms of being begotten. The phrase used here to describe the Father's begetting of the Son... The the phrase that is used to describe the Father's begetting of the Son is the phrase eternal generation. 
that the Son was eternally generated or eternally produced or eternally begotten out of the Father. And again, this was never seen as something that occurred in time. It is an eternal act of the Father from before all ages, the confession says, Nicene Creed. From before all ages. That is, it's an act that belongs to the very nature and essence of God. What does it mean for God to be God? It means that the Father begot the Son. That's at least one thing that it means. Now the creed goes on to unpack only begotten even more fully. When it says that to be the only begotten means that he is God from God. He is light from light. He is very God from very God. This particular word here for from, it means out of. It means it came out of. He is God out of God. He is light out of light. He is very God out of very God. In other words, the Son is God in all His fullness and in all His infinite glory. But He is God as the only begotten Son from the Father. He is God from God. That is, He is God the Son generated out of the Father. He is in and of Himself light, but also He is light from light. Light derived from light. He is in and of himself very God in all his fullness. And yet, he is very God from very God. It affirms that this act of the Father begetting the Son was not an act of creation. You see that here in the Nicene Creed. Begotten from his Father before all worlds. Begotten, not made. Now, that's a very important qualifier signaling to us that being begotten of the Father, being God from God and light from light and very God from very God is not an act that was seen as being done in time or even being the act of the Father creating the Son. That's not what we mean when we speak of the Son being begotten of the Father. It's not that He was created by the Father or He was generated as some extra being of God. That's not the relationship between Father and Son. The relationship between Father and Son is a holy, divine communication of the full essence of God from Father to Son. We're going to talk about that next week. And I can't wait to get there. And then the confession or the creed confirms that this act of the Father begetting the Son, birthing the Son, if you will. This act caused the Son to be of one substance with the Father. That is, being in Himself fully, co-equally, and co-eternally God with the Father. Being equally of one substance, that is God. That was the result of eternal generation of the Son. One substance with the Father in His deity. This is how the church has historically understood the meaning of the word monogenes, which, as I mentioned earlier, did not change until the late 1800s and early 1900s. And you have to ask yourself the question, why is that? What's the cause behind that change? I'll leave you to ponder that. The third and final reason why I believe only begotten is the right translation and only and unique is not is because only begotten is the only thing, (laughs) the only translation, that makes sense of why the second person of the Trinity is called Son. Only begotten is the only translation that makes sense of why the first person of the Trinity is called Father. Why is one called Son? Why is one called Father? Well, the answer is monogenes. Translated as only begotten. To say that the second person of the Trinity is the only or the unique one from the Father does not imply that he is the Son from the Father. Do you see that? Do you understand that? 
But to call him the only begotten of the Father makes clear that that is exactly what he is. He is the Son, begotten of the Father. And if you notice, how many of you have an ESV in here? Look down at the ESV right now, verse 14. If you notice, even in translations like the ESV, where only begotten is replaced with only, or maybe in the NIV it's one and only, they still can't get away from the idea of sonship in their translation of that word. Even though they have changed the translation of that word from begotten to only, they still supply the word son. Why do they do that? Son is not in the Greek. Son is not in the word monogenes. Monogenes means only begotten. Well, they have to supply that word because that is what this word means. It means, it is speaking about a generation, the generation of a son coming forth from a father. Why not just go then with the traditional and historic understanding of monogenes as meaning the only begotten from the father? Not only does that make more sense of the unique relationship with the Father attributed to the Son, but it is also the only way to make sense of the fact that the second person of the Trinity is even called the Son. What makes him the Son of God, the Father? Or how can we call upon, how can he call upon God as his own Father? Or how, as in Ephesians 1.3, how can the first person of the Trinity be described as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity? Well, it's not merely in reference to his humanity. It is because in his person, the second person of the Trinity, he is the only one who has been begotten from the Father, and therefore he is the Son of the Father. His only begotten Son. Now for these reasons, I believe we ought to translate this word as only begotten. Was that overkill? Someone shook their head, yeah. It's overkill. Sorry. It's just the way I think. Uh, you have to suffer under that. Now there are several conclusions that can be drawn from this creed passed down to us from church history explaining what it means for the Son to be the Father's only begotten Son. And we're going to pick up right there next week in looking at these conclusions that we draw. What does it mean? Okay, we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, the foundation of how we're to understand monogenes. We, we get that monogenes means only begotten, if we're going to translate that. But what exactly does that mean in regard to the Son's relationship to the Father? What are we saying when we say that the Son is the Father's only begotten? We'll pick up there next week. Now, would you pray with me? Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the men and the women who have gone before us. Those who have labored and wrestled to understand what exactly your word is saying in particular matters such as this issue of this relationship, Father, between you and your beloved son. Father, I pray we would, we would grasp the significance of it. I pray that we would grasp more than just intellectually, but that our hearts would grasp the fullness of glory that is being revealed here. Lord, that's, that is what... That's what you tell us in your word, that the glory that we see in, in the life and ministry of Jesus is the glory that belongs to him as your only begotten. Lord, help us see your glory. Help us see his glory in this way. And, uh, Father, we pray that you would flood our hearts with holy longings to know Christ more. To, to love your beloved son as you love him. Lord, we'll never do that. We'll never love him the way you do. But Lord, we, we long to. We want to love Jesus Christ as you do. So please give us grace by your spirit to love him more fully, more completely than we do now. Yes. Father, bless us as we sing our closing hymn. May it be an act of worship and praise to you as Father, to you, Son, as only begotten, and to you, Holy Spirit proceeding to us from both. 
Lord, we pray for this blessing and this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. I pray that you know that blessing as you go forth this week and walk in the fullness of the love of God for you in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Amen. May you go in peace.